So we let go. We let be. And as we let go, we let go into our own ground of being, into our own Buddha nature. There's nothing that we need to hold on to. Whatever is occurring, whatever is happening, we can honor it, pay respect to it, to this unfolding process that we are. We might be able to simplify our practice into two words. Simply trust. And I'll end with a haiku. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that? Let's sit for a few minutes. So James mentioned last night that I would probably speak about the fourth kind of clinging, which I will. And this points us to the nature of selflessness or anatta. So I'd like to point a little bit to this this evening. Um, I say point because unless somebody has actually had a direct experience of anatta, it's a bit hard to understand intellectually or conceptually. So I'll do some pointing this evening. It's a little bit, it's hard to understand because it's a little bit like the story of the fish who had no words to express the nature of solid ground. And the story goes like this. The tortoise had just returned to the lake after a walk on the land and told his friend the fish about it. Of course, the fish said, you mean you were swimming on the land. And the tortoise tried to explain that one couldn't swim on the land, that it was solid and that one walked on it. But the fish, having no concept for solid or for walking, insisted that there could be nothing like it, that land must be liquid like, the, like his lake with waves and that one must be able to dive and swim there. There was nothing the tortoise could say to give him the experience. So in this way, we really want to hold on to our fixed views, our ideas, and yet there are the noble ones, the wise sages that say, wait a minute, Maybe your view, your belief isn't as solid as you take it to be, your belief in yourself. This is from Wei Wu Wei, who says, Why are you unhappy? 
because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> so we hear this, you know, we hear this concept a lot of no self or, you know, uh, selflessness. Sometimes we hear anatta translated as no self, and I think that can be a little misleading because it can actually make us, it make it seem like Wei Wei said, you know, there isn't a self. And then, you know, we have this sense of who we are and, you know, that we are this, you know, body and this personality and, and there seems to be me here and you there. And how can you tell me that there isn't the sense of self here? And yet I think that it's really not quite like that. I think that no self isn't actually a very good translation. I think it's better to think of not self. Because this is more what the Buddha Buddha pointed us to, that anything that arises in our experience is not me, is not mine, is not I, it's not self. So the thoughts and the feelings and sensations and sights and taste, smell, touch, all those experience, actually there's the five experiences of the senses and the thoughts that arise about those sensation experiences, those six experiences are always changing, always shifting, always transforming. And so we say, it's not myself, it's not me, it's not mine. This is getting closer to the understanding of anatta, so that we're actually not clinging to anything as myself, who I am. This is what I want to talk more about this evening. I started encountering these teachings very, very early on with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and his teacher, Manindraji, the wonderful Indian man from Calcutta, who taught Joseph the phrase, empty phenomenon rolling on, to see all things as empty phenomenon rolling on. And this is something Joseph would say again and again in all of his instructions and many times in his talks and reminding us just to see all things as empty phenomena rolling on. And it was really a wonderful way to reflect and consider that, yes, there's all this phenomenon that arises, this phenomena that arises and passes, thoughts, sensations, sight, sound, taste, touch, body, uh, memories, associations, emotions, but they're all just rolling on, empty, empty, empty. We're instructed again and again not to hold on to anything. I think this is what James spoke about last night. I wasn't able to be here for the talk. But this letting go, not holding on to anything. In Pali, there's a very often quoted phrase that goes like this, Sabe dama nalam abini visaya. Sabe dama nalam abini visaya. And it means nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And yet, this is really one of the strongest attachments that we have this conditioned belief of a sense of a solid sense of self, solid sense of me. 
It's a very, very solid idea and one that's quite difficult at times to come out of or to kind of begin to make some sense out of. And this is, it's, when we say it's conditioned, is a very long history of repeating that belief again and again and again, not really having evidence for anything different until we come to the practice and we start to look in a different kind of way. We may begin to see, oh yeah, everything is changing. What can I actually take to be mine? I think the operative word when we say this belief in a solid sense of self, the operative word really is solid. Because there is a sense of self that does seem to be real. I'm here, you're there. They're in this appearance of things. There is this duality. There is a sense of separation. And this is true. Even after we become quite awake and quite realized, that doesn't go away. There's still that sense of this truth. But we don't take that to be the only truth. We see that there is something else, something more, something more profound that is also true. We start to sense more into that interconnected nature, that unified nature that we, are, we all are. We believe ourselves to be a fixed entity that moves through space and time. I am born, I will die, as if we're traveling through some kind of time canal. And we start to consider all of these beliefs in our practice, on our path. Is it true? Am I born? Will I die? Perhaps, maybe it is just the body that dies. Maybe I am not only just my body. Maybe I am more than that. And as we start to explore and start to sense into this, perhaps we can touch and recognize something that is not the body, this body who I, that I take myself to be. In our practice, we are invited and encouraged to look very closely to see whether you can actually find anything that is static, anything that is fixed in your reality. This is what we turn our attention to, this anicca, the changing nature of all things. We can see very clearly it doesn't take a lot of of reflection when we sit down and close our eyes that the thoughts come and they go. They're like flashes in the mind. When we look very carefully, they're just like, they're really neuron flashing. And then they uh, take some kind of image uh, or or conceptual uh, overlay. But what are they really? When we look at this body, we can start to sense the different changing sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, itching, aching, vibrations, energy, uh, density, hardness, heat, uh, coolness, just coming and going, changing and shifting. When we start to see in this way more clearly, we might even ask the question, well, who do these experiences belong to? If everything's changing and everything's shifting, 
where is that core sense of me, that sense of I that I take myself to be? Can I find it? Where is it? We start to look. We start to explore. It seems that when we don't really see clearly, we superimpose an idea of self on top of this changing reality that is actually selfless. There isn't a core sense of self there that's doing all this or that's um, even experiencing all this when we really look closely. Does anything last at all? Anything, any experience. Where's the wonderful Indian lunch that we had today? No. Where's the, right now, where is that hot sun that was beating on our skin and on our backs? Where is, where are those experiences? Our habitual tendency is to think that all experiences are referring back to a fixed, unchanging self. That's where we find ourselves. But this is really what we are continually questioning, whether there is anything fixed, whether there is anything fixed at all in the entire universe, in this entire world. This is what Suzuki Roshi says from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. When we realize the everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. When we find our composure in it, when we're no longer fighting it, when we're no longer struggling, when we're no longer grasping, holding we find ourselves in nirvana. Nirvana, this freedom, the freedom which is revealed when we let go, when we fully let go, completely let go. There's no more holding. I've told this story a couple times, but it's when I talk about anatta, it's the story that comes back to me And I'm reminded of this time I was visiting some friends in Switzerland, in Bern, and not having been there before at this time, my friends took me to the downtown, which isn't called downtown, but called uh, the center of the city. And there was this really amazing clock uh, on this uh, church steeple, really lovely, huge, round clock that was up there. And, and he said, now wait just a minute, because in, a, in, in another minute or two, when the clock strikes on the hour, you're going to see a spectacle. And then we waited, and then the clock struck, and then all these little doors opened up, and all these little puppet figures came out and just started dancing and blowing little horns and banging drums. And, and there were about, you know, 10 or 15 little doors. And, and it was just spectacular just to watch all this. And it's, I think it had been there probably for a few hundred years. And then he, he told me, he said, now on the other side of this clock, the part that you can't see, 
It's all wooden. He said it's just a wooden gear. And there's no uh, motor. There's no battery. There's nothing that's moving the clock except that something, somebody set it in motion one time. And because of the way that it's all interconnected and the way that the gears are uh, 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 in- interconnected with each other, it just goes around and around and around. It's just, it's motivated by that momentum of how it's built. And then he said, if there was a stone or something, a straw, you know, a bird or something dropped something in one of those gears, the whole thing would stop. Just a little stone. And then he said, it's just like our mind. Everything's moving in this perfect momentum of flow, of nature, dynamism. And then we drop the stone, which is the fixed belief, the fixed idea, the belief in some aspect of myself as true in a limited, small way. The whole thing stops. We lose connection to that dynamic nature that we are. Just from that one thought, the clinging, the identification with that one thought, the whole thing stops. And we lose the revelation of the dynamism. And I, I, that, that's so potent for me because I can always imagine the gears on that clock in that perfect motion and just a little stone dropping in, the whole thing stopping. And I've been able to reflect back knowing that metaphor and reflect back on my own consciousness and where's the the stone that drops in? What's the stone that drops in that just stops that revelation and that momentum and that that connection with the dynamic nature? I think we might be able to say that the stone in our own mind, is is clinging. That every time there's that moment where we get caught, identified, attached to some aspect of our experience and take it to be me or mine, that's the stone. The Buddha actually talked about three obsessive views. And I like the word obsessive because this is the the stone in a way. This is kind of uh, uh, how we get caught. And he says these, these three obsessive views are governed by the three torments of the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. And that it's these views that give rise to the misperception of who we take ourselves to be. The first obsessive view is I, or me. This is called sakyaditi or the identity view, or the personality view, or we might even say ego, the I. This is who I am. And in the Buddha said, when we take five skandhas, or these five bundles, to be myself, this is when we're caught in this identity view. The five are when I take my body to be myself, when I take my feelings to be myself 
And this is the feelings that Sylvia taught of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone of all experience. When I take my perceptions to be myself, when I take my conceptions or the mental activity to be myself, and when I take consciousness to be myself, even consciousness, that's the one that people sometimes go, consciousness, even consciousness? I can take that to be myself, or that's not, that's not it either. These are the five processes which make up our life and who we take ourselves to be. Body, feelings, perceptions, conceptions, and consciousness. These are the areas, these are the bundles that we, I, we cling on to voraciously and say, this is me. This is who I am. This is what's happening to me. A, this, a Western definition of identity view or ego is one I heard. A psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and what the world is. Beliefs that have been formed in our early childhood. I like that, a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs. And sometimes it feels that way. It feels like these beliefs are crystal. When you think about crystal, it's hard and it's jagged and it's, you know, and yet it still has a certain translucency to it. You know, these crystallized beliefs. And we can see how this happens. We can see it here, how we can... um, characterize who we are around one thought. One thought. It might be the thought, and we hear this in interviews, you know, I'm not very far along in my practice. That's, (laughs) okay, the self is coming into view there. Or, I'm much further along than everybody else here, and so I'm not sure I fit in, you know. Um... I'm not getting very far in my practice. One yogi was saying to me today, I should really be able to go deeper and not be caught in this rigidity that I feel in my chest. You know, I should be able to break through. These kinds of ideas, these self-ideas, you know, or I'm enlightened, I'm unenlightened, and it's going to be a lot of hard work, and I don't know whether I'm ever going to be enlightened in this lifetime. That's a view. That's a identity view there. Who knows? Is that true? So, so, so we can see how it's just a thought. These limiting thoughts that already we, we wrap ourselves around these thoughts and we come into being. We come into being somebody who is that description. We have these limiting thoughts about our intelligence, about the way we look, about our aging process, around our physical strength or our lack of physical strength, strength, our emotional stability, around our spiritual progress. This is just what minds do. This is where, what we're preoccupied with. One of my teachers early on told me when I was wanting to know where I was in my spiritual, on my spiritual path, and I had some kind of idea about that, 
she said to me, it was Sharon Salzberg actually, she said to me, you can't evaluate your practice. Don't think you can evaluate your practice. That was like such good advice because, you know, when I think about where do we go to evaluate it? What do we use for the measurement when we evaluate our practice? Is it objective? Are we seeing very clearly when we do that? How can we possibly know where we are in the scheme of things? But yet that's what we want to find ourselves somewhere. We want to place ourselves somewhere. We want to know in this way. This is a quote from the Buddha, from the Majjhima Nikaya, which I really like a lot. The Buddha said, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One. For in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. Think about that for a minute. Whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. When I was doing a, a retreat, a guy a house, and I came across that quote, I actually went and looked in the mirror. And looking in the mirror is always great practice, maybe more for a woman than for a man. I don't know. Looking in the mirror and then reminding myself, kind of saying that quote to myself, in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. And just looking and reflecting and saying, I have no idea. You know, anything that I, any thought that I have about the way I look or the way I perceive myself isn't true because it's just the mind, the mind having some kind of idea, perception, conception. And if I hold on to it for an instant, it's going to be suffering. One way or the other, whether it's good, whether it's not good. Any way we conceive is other than any, any conception The fact is other than that. Very powerful for us. Right now, you've been, some of you have been here for, what, 12 days? Some of you have been here for five days. Just take a moment and reflect for yourself. Is there any thought that you are identifying with about who you are? Just pick, I mean, there's, I should say it like this. Pick out one thought (laughs) of the myriad thoughts (laughs) that you have about who you're taking yourself to be. See if there's a predominant thought. See if there's one that seems somewhat persistent about your practice or about how you're being here, about who you think you are in comparison to somebody else. Just see what thought arises. Sometimes you don't have to go very far. The thought's pretty present. Does anybody want to just say? <laughs> it might be a bit much, but... I'm a spiritual retard. Ah, that's a good one. I'm a spiritual retard. Anybody else have that one? <laughs> I'm not really getting it. I'm not really getting it. Can also be elevated ones. 
<laughs> Anyone else want to take a risk? And Sometimes just even saying it is already a way to let go. It's already a disidentification, right? Have you just experienced that? Yeah. You've already let go. It's like nothing to hide. It's not really, it's just you can already feel lighter about it. There's more ease around it. I'm a grandmother. Now, that's probably true, but I have a feeling it's a little loaded. (laughs) So it's the loaded part that we're actually looking at, the identification part. Maybe one more. Isaac. I'm working hard. I'm working hard. I'm working hard. I'm working hard. So again, it may be true, but you want to see where, where is it loaded for you? Where is the clinging for you? Because sometimes we just make a statement about things, and it's just true. There's not much identification. It, it's, it's here now, and it's gone the next five minutes. Maybe the next five minutes, I'm not working so hard. So we want to see, where is the clinging? Where is that sense of how we... Sometimes we really want to hold on so tightly. We don't want anybody to take it away from us for some reason. You know, We just want that identity. Maybe the reason has something to do with starting to discover who we are when we let go. And sometimes that can be a little scary. It's like, oh, maybe there's something more or there's something else that I'm not sure about. And we start to just walk into the unknown a little bit. And that can be a little frightening sometimes. What do you do about her being a grandmother? Well, that's what I said, you know... The question was, what do you do about her being grandmother? It's true. So the question for her is, the question for her is, is there any clinging in that? Is there any, where's the suffering in that? Because it doesn't need to be any suffering in that. That's what we're looking at. I'm not going to actually go to do much dialogue right now. If, <laughs> if there's no suffering, then there's freedom. There's freedom from suffering. That's where we're pointing. Freedom from suffering. Freedom from the clinging is freedom from the suffering. It is these fixed and solid beliefs and ideas that actually hold this structure together, this solid sense of myself. They hold that identity view together. And so it can be very helpful to really pay attention to what thoughts are arising, how these thoughts arise. Do we have an an identification? Do we take these thoughts to be true about who we are? Because what we're actually practicing is the letting go. Can we let go? Let go into a more profound experience of who we are. So the first obsessive view is this view of I or me. The second obsessive view is a little variation on this, which is the I am. In Pali, it's a different word. It's mana, which is translated as conceit. I think it's similar to the first, but it's more more of a declaration. This is who I am. 
And we can, we know that, that experience of conceit in many different ways. Even just, I think, even proclaiming that I am somebody, I am this body, I know who I am, is actually a form of conceit. And conceit isn't such a bad thing because it's probably been mentioned here before that in very high stages of enlightenment, there is still conceit all the way up until the third stage. Fourth stage being full liberation. But there's, oh, there's conceit all the way up that far. So I tell you that so to help you relax a little bit about some of your, your, your views and ideas about who you are. Conceit is a kind of arrogance or pride in who we take ourselves to be. We can elevate ourselves and want to be seen a particular way by other people. This is how we get caught in self-image and identity. And since it's based in ignorance, it's not based in wisdom, there's no real foundation when this conceit is present. What it, what's still there is a certain kind of fear or insecurity underneath, a place where we're still, there's still some confusion. There's still some ignorance about the truth of who we are. An example of this is we can build an identity around the idea of no self or not self. We can build an identity around being free or liberated. It's just another way, another conception of our experience that we can easily grasp to. Here's a story that exemplifies that. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The shamus, the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So being nobody can be some, another attainment for the ego, for the identity, for the self-image. The third obsessive view is, is called tanha, or mine. How we wrap our sense our, uh, ourselves around things, uh, or our bodies, or our feelings, or perceptions, conceptions, and consciousness, and say, this is mine. So we have I, I am, I or me is the first one, I am is the second one, and mine. An example of this mine, what I ta- how I take to- things to be mine. I was teaching once at Guy House in England, and one of the people, yogis, who was on personal retreat, uh, when people do personal retreat, retreat, there's a little more flexibility. Uh, sometimes they can do some service or some work. And this yogi really wanted to bake a cake for the, all the people who were on retreat. He really, really just this generosity just pouring out of his heart, just this, this kind of a selfless act of generosity. And so he baked this wonderful cake and served it. And then he came into an interview and he said, 
baking that cake just really stirred up my practice to no end. He said, that cake was me. And he said, all I could think about was what everybody was thinking about the cake and if they liked it, if they didn't like it. He said, it was just as if that cake was my arm. He said, I just, I couldn't let go. I had so much investment in that cake. It was me. And he saw how that cake was really just an extension of himself. And that's really what we do so much of the time. Our actions or uh, things that we have or things that we do, it's me. And we have such an investment in what it looks like and the outcome and how it affects people. It started off, his action started off very selfless and very detached. And then the clinging came in, all the identification around it. This is the tanha that we've been talking about, clinging, the clinging. This is mine. The Buddha also calls these three obsessive views the three springs of papancha. And papancha is this wonderful word, which means proliferation of thought. That, you know, we have one thought, and then it leads to another thought, then another thought. We hop on the train, and then we're just going to some destination, and then we wonder how we got there. And uh, sometimes it's a good destination, sometimes it's not such a good destination. But this is the papancha. It's a great word. It's a good word for uh, us, for people to remember. It's papancha, these three, these three views are papancha because it's the way our mind embellishes experience by interpreting, interpreting it in terms of mine or I or myself. This is actually how the mind operates through this papancha, through this proliferation. When there isn't any awareness around us actually doing that, we can get very caught up in our stories and our beliefs and our associations and then think, it's me. It's me. This is my life, my reality. There's a truth to it, but it's not the whole truth. And on a spiritual path, we're looking for the whole truth, not a limited truth. Many times in the Buddha's discourses in the text, you can, we can find one of his phrases where he says, Seen as it actually is, with proper wisdom, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And that can be something that we can repeat to ourselves as a practice. Seen as it actually is, with proper wisdom, this is not mine, This I am not. This is not myself. This is what we are practicing, what we're reflecting on here. When we talk about our personality and who we take ourselves to be, we're really talking about our habits of mind which are called sankharas, these conceptual frames of mind that get reinforced through repetition over and over and over again, these just believing the same thing over and over without questioning questioning or without bringing some doubt to our mind. And these habits are called karmic inclinations because they're patterns that we have set in motion over time. So they're actually uh, uh, reaping karma for us in our lives. And these habits build up to form the entire construction of our self-view 
and even our worldview. These are the, this is the filter over our consciousness, that, that, the lens in which we see ourselves and the world. And without awareness and mindfulness, we don't know what we are building up, and there's little room to do anything differently. Without some awareness, we're just going to keep repeating the same habits over and over again, and there really isn't a possibility for transformation. It is really only when we see, only when there's some reflection, only when some wisdom comes through that we can begin to do something differently. And this awareness is what brings self-understanding. In our practice, we're not denying the personality. We're not denying in any way whatsoever how this personality is expressing itself in any moment, how it takes shape, And we're not trying to convince ourselves in any way or persuade ourselves in any way that we're nobody, that we're not a self. But rather, we're realizing the way things are. We're attempting to see clearly into the nature of things. And then perhaps we can ask the question, well, who am I when I'm not bound by these habitual egoic patterns of mind. Who am I when there's a break in that momentum? This is a practice that Ajahn Sumedho, one of our beloved teachers, the the Canadian monk that uh, I think James was speaking about the other night, the big guy who was a a disciple of Ajahn Chah, who, who still is, He said, I used to make it a practice to play with personality rather than merely trying to let go of it. To think I've got to get rid of my personality and not attach to my emotions is one of the ways we grasp the teachings of the Buddha, meaning grasp it in a misunderstanding. Instead, I would become a personality quite intentionally so I could listen to and observe this sense of me and mine. I would practice bringing up the thoughts, me, What about me? Don't you care about me? Aren't you interested in what I think and how I feel? And these are my things. This is my robe, my possessions, my bowl, my space, my view, my thoughts, my feelings, and my rights. I am Ajahn Sumedho. I am Mahatera. He would really just bring this up into his consciousness. I am a disciple of Ajahn Chah and on and on like that. This is what makes me an interesting person, a person that has titles and is respected and admired in the society. I would listen to that. I would listen, not to knock it down or criticize it, but to recognize the power of words and how I could create myself. Isn't that lovely? I would listen to it because this is how I could create myself. And as I did this, I would more and more find the refuge in awareness rather than in the conditions of my personality, rather than in the fears and the self-disparagement or the megalomania or whatever else happened to be operating in consciousness. He would find refuge in awareness. Such a lovely reflection, pointing us back to what is fundamentally true in our being, in our consciousness. 
So we're not trying to erase the personality, but rather see it for what it is, that it's a conditioned realm that is always changing, so that perhaps we cannot be so identified with the expression of who we are moment to moment. Can we know ourselves in a more profound way? Walt Whitman said, I am larger and better than I thought. I didn't know I held so much goodness. I am larger and better than I thought. We can see very clearly how the personality is not a fixed entity. We can reflect on the fact that I'm a different person with different people in different conditions, depending on my mind states, my physical state. We're always changing depending on the conditions that we find ourselves in. Some people that we're with bring out the best in us. Other people bring out the worst in us. People we love and feel safe with, we, our heart can open, we can relax, more of ourselves and who we are comes forth, more of the, 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 the authentic person that we are come forth. I worked with somebody for a very, very long time who every time I was with this person just triggered some of my most difficult uh, uh, early childhood conditions. And I am quite convinced that this person has never seen me in any other state. But as a fairly regressed and tense, uptight person. And I feel sad about that. You know, I, I know that I'm more than that, but it just seems that when I'm with this particular person, I just can't, I just get tense and I'm not able to show more of who I am. So that part of my personality comes out, and it actually doesn't really come out with anybody else. It just seems to come out with her. So that's an expression of this particular personality, this this self that I am, the conditions that I am. That one gets expressed. There are certain conditions that bring out the best, conditions that bring out the best and worst of us. When we're tired, or we're not feeling well, we're overworked. We all know that we're not really expressing the best of us at those times. When I was reflecting on this, I thought, well, where, where, what conditions really bring out the best in me? And I thought of Hawaii. <laughs> I've had the... See, even, even saying it, everybody gets happy. <laughs> it's like, um, just even imagining myself there, I just, I've had the good fortune of being able to go there a few times in the last year. And it, I feel like I'm in the God realm. I feel like I'm an angel, you know, just like so happy and light and vivacious and open. <laughs> It's a whole different kind of uh, part of my personality gets expressed there, expressed there. Our mind states, you know, sometimes they're, they, they, the mind states themselves bring out the worst of us. Someone mentioned to me in an interview once that when his mind gets contentious with others, that's the worst part of himself. 
And when he, his mind is, and heart is filled with metta towards others, that's the best part of himself. So all these different kinds of expressions. We even see it when we come back here on the retreat, when we come back from a brisk walk or we've done qigong or um, we've done some exercise, we can feel that kind of uplifted energy. Our, our, we feel bright and we feel ready to go. Who are we? Which one of those are you? Who are you? Our personality is adaptable. It adapts to situations. It doesn't go away. Our personality doesn't go away. And it's always something useful to remember when you leave a retreat. (laughs) That your personality is going to go with you. It's just going to change, as all things do. As we look more deeply into who we take ourselves to be and begin to question these limiting beliefs, we begin to let go of these constricting ideas because we're not empowering them no longer in the same way. And these habits start to loosen up. They don't have the same grip in our consciousness. And when they don't have the same grip, we actually experience more space Space when we're not locked in to the clinging, to the, to the holding, to the grasping in the same way. We actually experience more space. That's why we use the word spacious sometimes. I feel spacious. I feel open. I feel expanded. Because there's not that grip that contraction in the mind. When we have awareness, we create a gap or a break in the momentum of our habitual self. And this allows for the possibility of something new to shine through. You can reflect on a time when you weren't caught up in the craving or the clinging or the grasping whether it was a pleasant experience or even an unpleasant experience, a difficult experience. Just think for a moment of a time where that clinging wasn't so strong. Maybe it's even right now and you can come into your own experience and just feel that. Sensing the qualitative difference in your experience when you're not bound up in the habitual self. This is a moment of, we call it, momentary freedom. It's momentary freedom, or we even can call it temporary nibbana. Because nibbana, in a way, is the connection, is the knowing, the realization of that, um, the, the, the absence of the grasping. There's, that's no longer in consciousness. It can be even a moment or an instant, and we can feel the power, the effect of that freedom. We might call that freedom from stress or freedom from the heat, freedom from contraction, from suffering. In these moments, we experience the full texture of the moment without judgment or without clinging to our story, or needing things to be otherwise. There's no struggle. There's no conflict with reality in these moments. And what is left 
is peace. Even if it's for a moment or a few moments, we feel directly the peace that is there in the absence of this clinging. Clinging to views, clinging to ideas, to identification. And as this force of grasping gets weaker and the sense of meanness gets weaker, the eye is not so demanding. We smell the perfume of selflessness. We smell the perfume of anatta. It's right there. It's not so far away. We don't have to go very far to smell this wonderful perfume. When the eye is not so demanding, the sense of me, the sense of myself gets weaker. And over time, over a long period of time, it just gets weaker and weaker as we continue to do our practice, as we continue to pay attention to the way that the mind wants to form this sense of identity or sense of self. And we understand more clearly, more completely, how this actually happens. We can see it because we've taken refuge in awareness. If I let go of the belief in who I take myself to be, I discover something wholly new because I'm not confined by my idea of I or me. And then there's the possibility of feeling into or trusting something much more profound than this small sense of self. Something that is much greater than this small self and mind can even conceive. And as we let go and we trust and we feel into this profundity, we touch the mystery, this great mystery where the mind cannot go, the thinking mind cannot go. Our concepts, our conceptions, our our reflections, it can't go here. And as we develop our trust, we can let go into it, surrender into it, and we may even be surprised that we feel a kind of holding or a kind of support as we let go. We let go into this effortless quality of being itself, where we no longer have to be the one who is doing everything. But we might say we feel the non-doing nature as we rest into this great mystery, which has profound intelligence. This is from Kalu Rinpoche, the great Tibetan masters. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. Knowing this, you are nothing. Being nothing You are everything. That is all. I'm going to read it again. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. Knowing this, you are nothing. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all.
simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that? 